hey, 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 hey. You're confusing me with some other Eric Metaxas. I don't know what is going on. Please be seated. What a blessing. I'm a little bummed out Pastor Ray is not here, though. Do you really think he's having eye surgery, or is he just like... Because sometimes pastors blow smoke, you know? They say, that's not really, you know, lying. I just need some rest. So you better be having that eye surgery. I need to see a paper from the doctor. Otherwise, this whole thing is a sham. Why am I here, right? Okay, uh, I just, it's such a blessing uh, to be here. Tremendous blessing to be in a church like this. Not, not this church specifically, but a church like this, okay? It's a blessing to, to be here. In New York, we don't have churches this large, uh, but I think we have, we have covens of witches that are, that are about this size in New York. That's a bitter joke. That's a joke. Um, I just, I got to be careful how I joke because at the 8.30 service, it's a different group and they're not allowed to laugh at that service. Very religious. They're very religious. A lot of the women were wearing veils and there was not an unbearded man in the group. That was, in, that was incredible to see that, uh, nah, that's more stupid jokes. I, I, um, I found out after the first service that the, uh, a dear friend, Ann Graham Lotz, had watched on video, I guess, right? And you know, does that ever happen to you? You're like, what the heck? Like, oh no, what did I say? Because she's very serious. She even watched the video wearing a veil. That's just the kind of the spirit of God. But yeah, you have certain friends that are like, Eric, just shut up with the jokes, enough. You know, and when you find out that they're like, they're, yeah, I was in the audience, you're like, uh-oh, what did I say? So, or if you listen to my radio program, if, if strangers listen to my program, I'm thrilled. But when a friend tells you, like, yeah, I listened to your program, it's really creepy. I'm thinking, what did I say? I don't, I don't want to know. Uh, speaking of my radio program, I just get this out of the, the way. Um, we, it's, I think of it as a TV program because... Uh, we, we tape everything. TBN uh, puts a half an hour on of our program on the weekends, but we tape, you know, 10 hours of content with amazing guests. It's not me talking. It's me interviewing s astonishing people with amazing stories. Um, and uh, YouTube canceled me from, because as you know, uh, I use a lot of vulgarity and, you know, they have to have standards at YouTube, okay? And so, uh, you know, all the nasty stuff, the porn and everything, I understand why they canceled my channel. It, it makes good sense. You don't want kids looking at that. So YouTube canceled me. So, I mean, actually, it's so ridiculous because so many people say, we listen to, to your program, you know, with our kids. And I'm thinking, that's the kind of program I want to do, right? But YouTube has creepy Marxist community standards. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If you're a, look, if you're a God-hating Marxist atheist, what can I tell you? Who's to say who's right or wrong, right? But, but they canceled me, and I'm going through that whole thing to let you know that I want to always ask, not to neglect to mention, if you sign up for my newsletter, which is just my name, ericmetaxas.com, the website. You can sign up for newsletter, ericmetaxas.com. Uh, we'll send you all the videos and stuff because it's on Rumble in different places. And I have really had amazing guests. And when you watch it, you know, as a TV thing, it's, it's kind of it's cool. So it's just my name, ericmetaxas.com. My name, of course, is just ericmetaxas. The .com is added. I want, I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> Does anybody know what the .com stands for? Anybody? Oh, you use it all the time. You have no idea what you're typing in there. Isn't that interesting? It stands for commerce, right? So if it's .org, it's like nonprofit. .com is commerce. Now you know. I love sharing important things with, with people that have no place to go. They're stuck. They have to listen. Now you know. All right, I want to talk about some more interesting things. Um, uh, I want to talk about God and whether we know he exists. Because I'm on the fence, I've got to be honest. I don't know. Um, it's, it's actually funny. We live in a culture that we know is a very secular culture. Now, it didn't always used to be that way, but generally speaking, I would say since my childhood, since the 60s, it's become very secular. Some of you know that in 1966, Time Magazine published a very famous uh, cover article. It said, Is God Dead? 
And it's this, you know, like red letters on this funereal black. It's really chilling concept. Is God dead? Um, now, on some level, that doesn't make any sense because if he was ever alive, he wouldn't be dead now, right? Because he's God. Uh, but uh, it's just a, it's just a creepy idea. But I think people were thinking in the 60s and, of course, now that, you know, science is pushing God out of the picture. And the reason they said, is God dead, is because Nietzsche, who eventually went insane, not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but he kind of thought about this stuff a little too much and lost his mind. But he said, God is dead. Now, without getting into that whole thing, the point is that in 1966, a lot of people are looking around and thinking science is pushing God out of the picture. The more we learn from science, the more we don't really need to know if, if there is a, a God because science is telling us everything we need to know. Like, why do you need God to create the universe when, you know, we, we know what we know, right? Uh, we're not going to get into the Big Bang because, <clears throat> excuse me, God did that, but I don't want to talk about that right now. But Darwin in 1859 suggested the idea of what's called natural selection that life evolves. Now, of course, this happens on a micro level, right? You have to understand the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. If you breed animals, you can see that, you know, if you, if you breed them in a certain way, you can get, you know, dogs that are bigger or this or that. We all, we all know that. That's called microevolution, right? But what, if you really believe in Darwinian evolution, they're talking about macroevolution. They're thinking like a fish could turn into a monkey. Have you ever seen that happen? It's freaky. <laughs> but, but think about it, right? They believe everything came out of the sea, and there are no, I mean, as a believer, I believe there could be evolution within a species. I mean, you know, you want a, a cat with longer hair, well, you, you breed the cats with the longest hair and you get longer hair, but that's not really evolution. But, but they're talking about, forget species. There's like, we can go from a frog to a giraffe. Have you seen that? That is, it's not happening. So, but the point is that Darwin suggested that there's this mechanism in the natural world for the whole panoply of creation of come into being without God. And a lot of people bought into that, a lot of people didn't, but that concept, that thesis of science figuring these things out and we don't need God, it, 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 it moved into the culture. Usually these things, it's the trickle-down effect, right? It reaches the intellectuals because you have to be really, really educated to believe the dumbest stuff. <laughs> if you have common sense, it's harder. If you're just like a working person with common sense, it's, hard, it's harder to believe like that socialism could work, for example. <laughs> Not that I'm trashing socialism. I would never do that from the pulpit. <laughs> but catch me backstage, and I'll give you an earful, or at the book table. No, but the funny thing is that the, it is true that intellectuals often have these ideas, but the ideas don't trickle down. It takes decades for the ideas to trickle down. But by 1966, you know, Darwin is 1859. By 1966, a lot of these ideas had been trickling down, and then Time Magazine puts it right in the center of America's living room. Is God dead? And so the reigning narrative during most of our lifetimes is that there are, uh, that science is at war with the idea of faith, and there's, so there's reason and then there's religion, right? Now, there are a lot of people who believe that. It's not true, but you can understand why in 1966, or even today, why some people would get that impression, because it's the reigning cultural narrative, and they, they just think that, they call it the God of the gaps, right? That, you know, the more we discover, uh, the, the less, we need God, and the God of the gaps is disappearing because science is discovering everything. Well, the fact of the matter is that right around the time that that cover article appeared in Time magazine, things began to shift. We adopted that narrative as a culture, but the evidence began to pile up from science for the existence of God. Now, that's a fact, okay? Whether you believe in God or don't, I'm just telling you, science started rather dramatically pointing toward God. The number one uh, argument would be what's called the fine-tuned universe. Does anybody know what, what I mean by that when I say that? So, some of you uh, know, but Christopher Hitchens was asked 
what's the number one argument from the other side, from the God side? Because you're an atheist, you've debated all these people who believe in God. What's the number one argument from the God side? And he said, oh, without any question, the fine-tuned universe. Now, the fine-tuned universe simply means that science discovers things that sort of freak them out. Like they discover that, gee whiz, if the Earth were a tiny bit smaller or a tiny bit bigger, life couldn't exist. That's what science discovered, and it's pretty recent because, you know, if you watch Star Trek, you just assume, like, life can exist anywhere in the universe, in the galaxy, there's life everywhere, and people still seem to think that. They're like, we found an exoplanet, you know, 50 zillion light years away with a puddle of water, and we know fish are gonna be jumping out of that water like any second, there's gotta be life there, you know, there's like this idea that life just emerges, no problem. Well, science has discovered fairly recently that that's not the case, and that to fine tune a planet or even a universe for life takes a lot. Now, this is what science says. So science will tell you that we've discovered fairly recently there's a thing called a magnetosphere, and that if the Earth were slightly smaller, our magnetosphere wouldn't be powerful enough uh, to, to prevent us from losing our, our atmosphere. And without an atmosphere, you would not be breathing very effectively during this service. I don't, want to, I don't mean to freak you out. But the atmosphere, this is not piped in. God did this, okay? When you breathe, right, you go, oh, it's very nice. Yeah, God did that. Okay, so imagine that science didn't know this a while ago, but they've now discovered that if Earth were a slightly different size, a little bit smaller or a little bit bigger, there would be no life. That's interesting, right? Some of them call it the Goldilocks principle, right? You know, this chair is too soft, this chair is too hard, this one's just right. They keep finding over and over and over again that there, there are all of these parameters everywhere you look in science that are a little creepy. It's like, gee, that's weird. It's perfectly tuned for life on Earth. They discover this over and over and over. So even Christopher Hitchens, who was a very uh, vicious atheist in a rare moment of candor, because he, he was too vicious normally to admit this stuff, he admitted that yes, that's the fine-tuned argument is the one that makes the atheists, it, it gives us trouble, it's stuff to work out. Because, the, think of this as irony, the more science discovers of this kind of stuff, the more it points to God. So it's not what we've been hearing our whole lives, that science, the more science you find, the less you need God, that's what everybody said. But God decided to flip the script God has a sense of humor. He likes to do this now and again, just to play with our heads to see if we're paying attention. He decides to flip the script. So this evidence has been piling up and up and up. I first discovered this reading the books of Hugh Ross. Some of you know Hugh Ross, anybody? He lives uh, here in, in California, and that was a freaky thing. Talk about finding out Anne Graham Lotz was like watching you in the previous service. I remember speaking to a group, must have been Santa Barbara or something like that, and I'm talking about Bonhoeffer, you know? Some of you know my book, Bonhoeffer. That's the one. People always say, thank you for your book. And I go, what book? I've written 13 books. And they go, oh, Bonhoeffer. I go, thanks. Uh, it's kind of funny because that's, you know, I don't want to be ungrateful. I am so great. The Lord clearly led me to write that book because unfortunately, it's a, it's a template for what's happening now, but I don't want to be political, so shh, we'll edit that out. But people often say to me, thank you for your, for your book, right? Well, I want to say that um, I literally forgot why I brought that up. <laughs> Hugh Ross, thank you. It's so good to have an audience, a live audience. Uh, at the 8.30, they wouldn't have remembered. They wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> yeah, oh, don't ever appreciate the 8.30. That's a tough crowd. Nasty people, very nasty. Um, okay, so... So one day I was in Santa Barbara or that area talking about Bonhoeffer, but it was one of these creepy moments where like, you're, you know, normally I'm not like looking at people's faces, you know, you know, I'm just talking, right? And I just look over and there's Hugh Ross right there looking back at me. And I was like, uh, uh because like this guy introduced me. I got, I got saved in 88 
in like 1990, I was reading Hugh Ross's books, and he talks about the fine-tuned universe. And this guy is a super genius, and he writes on a level, I mean, he, he goes into the depth of, of, of how everywhere you look in science, everywhere you look, you see evidences of fine-tuning. And you start realizing there's no way this just happened. We just happen to be on a planet just the right size. We just happen to be. It goes on and on and on. But I'll never forget, like, suddenly realizing, oh, no, Hugh Ross is listening to whatever I'm saying. Like, there's no way that I could. So it's, I'm still getting over it. It really shocked me. Um, but the fact is that I was introduced to this stuff through Hugh Ross. And he's got an amazing ministry called Reasons to Believe. And if you want more on this, my... my goal in a lot of the writing I do is I'm a popularizer. I write about stuff. I'm not a scholar that spends decades and decades and then I write a book. I, I find stuff and then I, and then I go, this is so amazing. I want to tell other people. So I want to tell you so that you can find Hugh Ross and the other people that I mentioned in my book and you can go deeper and you can see for yourself what, I, what I'm saying. But um, he introduced me to this idea and I wrote a book called Miracles about, I don't know, seven years ago. And that was a book, I know you guys believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this church, right? Anybody getting any Rima words of knowledge from me right now? Any prophecy? No? <laughs> you don't believe in it. Okay, so um, I, I, uh, I remember, you know, being talked into writing a book about miracles, and I thought it's important. I think a lot of times people used to associate me with Chuck Colson or I wrote Bonhoeffer, so they thought I'm one of those cerebral you know, I'm a Grand Rapids reformed Christian, you know? And I thought, well, no, I mean, when I first got saved, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've experienced miracles and I believe in miracles. And I've met plenty of people who talk about the miraculous and they're half nuts. So I understand why some people shy away from that. But I said, let me write a book about miracles. And when I was writing the book about miracles, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm, I'm writing these amazing stories of things that have happened to people that are just clearly true miracles. But I thought, about Hugh Ross and the fine-tuned universe, and I, and I said, that is without any question the greatest miracle that's ever happened in the history of the world, the creation of the world by God. The more you know about it, the more crazy it is. It's like you just think, wow. You know, a lot of times people say, is your God too small, right? When you start understanding what God did when he created this world, it is basically frightening. It's amazing on a level that our brains cannot comprehend. It's just truly astonishing. And the more science we learn, the more in awe of God we are. That's just a fact. It's just the Lord has reserved it for this time so that we're seeing things that we couldn't have known a number of years ago, but now we know. So 1966, you could say, is God dead? Well, now the question is, is atheism dead? Because the more you know, the more you say there's not the ghost of a chance that there is no God. You want to argue about what God is like? You want to be an agnostic? That's okay. We can talk. But to say there is no God, it doesn't seem intellectually tenable anymore. So when I wrote the book on miracles, I said, you know, I think I need to put in here what I consider the biggest miracle, which is, which is the fine-tuned universe, to describe how perfectly fine-tuned things are so that the odds, in other words, if you're, if you're saying like, you know, what are the odds that things are the way they are? It becomes so astonishing that it really, it is just glorious and horrifying at the same time. It's like you just can't even take it in, what God did. It's like if somebody says like, you know, I'm going to flip a coin and it's going to land heads, and it does. You go, hey, I'm going to do it again. You do it again. At what point do you know something's wrong? Like if I say, hey, I'm going to do it again six times. Now you're impressed. It's almost impossible. Try it. What about 600 times? Now you know something is up. Well, what if he did it 60,000 times? When you start looking at the fine-tuned universe, the odds of things being as they are are on a level that makes that look like nothing. And I'm telling you, that's what the science tells you. And I learned that from Hugh Ross. But it gets crazier and crazier. And you just think, this doesn't make sense. Science keeps finding more things that if they weren't exactly that way, we couldn't be here. Now, the big one, uh, I, I mentioned my book, Miracles. So I, so I wrote about this a little bit in the book, Miracles. And then the publisher said, well, why don't you write an op-ed or an essay or something to help sell the book? Because books don't sell themselves. And uh, it's not easy. I thought, OK, uh, what can I write about? 
I wrote about the fine-tuned universe. I mean, I've got stories in there about angels. I've got all these crazy stories. I said, that's the story that is the most amazing. So it was published actually in the Wall Street Journal, and the, uh, the article was titled, uh, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. And that got some people's attention. It became the most shared story in the history of the Wall Street Journal by a factor of more than double. And yes, right? And, and I think, man, I must be an amazing writer to be able to pull that off. Think about it. That's incredible. No, it tells you that there's a hunger in this world for questions about what about God and science? Like we keep hearing God and science are enemies. Is that true? And here I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, science increasingly makes the case for God. Well, that's interesting. And it talks about the fine-tuned universe. And the response was so crazy that I thought I probably should write more about this at some point, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book called Is Atheism Dead? I thought there's so much more that I didn't put in my miracles book. And that's just the fine-tuned universe argument. One of the things, I, I'm telling you, I discover stuff, sometimes it's so astonishing to me, I have to stop and like look around the room, am I, make, am I, you know, am I going crazy? The, the least fascinating things turn out to be the most fascinating things when you, when you start looking at them. Like, who among us doesn't take water for granted? I mean, you just think, water, big deal. Like what, you know, I'm 60, I'm, what, what are we, 70% water, the Earth's 70% water, it's clear, uh, what about it? Like what, I mean, you know, we can't even conceive of the concept of a liquid without thinking of water. Water is like the, the bottom, right? It's the most basic thing. Well. Some of the folks who study this, who are into this fine-tuned universe stuff, one, one of them, Michael Denton at the Discovery Institute uh, up in Seattle, wrote a book just about water. And it is so astonishing that it's, it's troubling because this thing that you take for granted, first of all, I mean, this is, again, you have to be a scientist to appreciate this stuff, but scientists say that water, chemically speaking, is like freakish. It, 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 it's, first of all, almost all liquids, when they become solids, when they freeze, they get heavier and they sink, right? But water, when it becomes a solid and freezes, floats. Did you know that ice floats? <laughs> have, have you ever had a drink with ice in it? It floats? Uh, that's not supposed to happen. That's a weird thing. How is it that water, when it gets really, really, really cold, it gets denser and denser and denser, right? But when it hits 39 degrees Fahrenheit as it's coming down, it suddenly reverses and becomes less dense until at 32 degrees when it freezes, it is, I don't know, 9% less dense than water in the liquid form, so it floats. It's weird, but whoever thinks about that? Well, if water didn't float, if it didn't have these weird properties, there's no life on Earth. Science will tell you that uh, for a hundred reasons, and again, the more science discovers, the weirder it gets, but if ice sank, uh, there'd be like a runaway freeze effect and, and all of the life inside, uh, you know, ponds and streams whatever, would, would not survive. Uh, the ice on the surface of a pond or whatever actually insulates the, the water below so that the life can thrive. And that's just for starters. As I was reading this book, I, I came up with, the, I, I read about the concept of erosion. Like who here doesn't think of erosion as a bad thing. Like we all think erosion, that's bad, right? You start realizing that God, when he created this planet and when he invented water, anybody here ever invent a liquid like water? It's very impressive. When he invented water, he created it so that it has viscosity. In other words, it's just thick enough. It's not too thick, you know, it's not molasses, but it's just thick enough that it erodes rock when it flows over rock. We all know that, right? But we think of that, that's bad, right? Erosion. Well, it turns out that because water has the viscosity that it does, as it erodes rock very incrementally, but it takes 
the minerals and the metals in the rock, it erodes it and carries it along with it, right? It also sometimes erodes rock in such a way that it, it carries ch little tiny, tiny chunks of, of the rock with it, which turns it into almost like a sandpaper so that the floating uh, particulate erodes even further, okay? Anybody bored yet? Well, what Michael Denton says in the book, and of course I put it in my book, is that what this does is it enables the water to carry the minerals and the metals in these rocks wherever it goes, so that it carries the minerals and the metals very, very far to feed the plants that need minerals and metals. So God has worked this all out so that a plant, wherever the water reaches it, is delivering nutrients that it got from a mountain a zillion miles away. And then animals eat the plants and animals get the minerals and the metals. Now this is just one example, but I never thought of this. I thought, that's just crazy. So if water were ever so slightly different, none of this would work, and we couldn't have plants anywhere because the metal and the mineral would stay in the rocks and whatever, but God has created this thing called erosion. Then you read that erosion is so powerful that water should have eroded every single mountain on planet Earth like a hundred times over. But obviously we still have some mountains. What happened? Well, that's where you get into plate tectonics. God designed plate tectonics so that the, the, that the plates are moving and creating mountains at the same time that they're being eroded and created and eroded and created. And you start thinking, Lord, now you're just showing off. <laughs> this is crazy stuff. And this is, trust me when I tell you that this is almost nothing. It goes on and on and on and on. And a lot of scientists who have, you know, a scientific view, scientistic or naturalistic view that there is nothing beyond this world, you can imagine some of them are starting to get a little freaked out. Uh, the, the, the man who invented the term the Big Bang uh, in 1949, I, I find this funny. I was telling my wife this morning, where's my wife? Is she hiding here someplace? Is she here? Honey, stand up and sing for the crowd. Would you sing? Where is she? She's not revealing herself. Look, she's very, very shy. Maybe she's not here after all. Maybe she's not here after all. Oh, she's hiding over there. Oh, thanks, honey. I hate to tell you, that's not my wife. I don't know who that is. I know that was. Um, no, you, kn you know she's a good wife because she was, she was here for both services. And she did wear the veil at the 8.30. Thank you, honey. Um, but we, I was joking with her this morning. I said that Fred Hoyle, this, I just find this funny. Fred Hoyle w was an atheist, lifelong atheist. And he was one of those people, I'm not, I'm not gonna get into this now, but there are three science arguments in the book. Then there's a ton of archeology span arguments, and then there's stuff about atheism and all kinds of other stuff. So there's almost three sections, right? But in the first section, I deal with the Big Bang itself, which I'm not gonna go into, because it's a long story, but that alone, is outrageous evidence for God because it drives scientists crazy that there's a point 13.8 billion years ago where literally the universe came out of nothing. Now, according to science, that's not supposed to happen at all, ever. But science, you know, again, the irony of God, God points to himself through science. So the point is that the guy who coined the term Big Bang is Fred Hoyle, and in 1949 on a BBC interview, scorning the idea of the Big Bang, he used the term Big Bang, like making fun of it. It's like, I don't know, what do they call it, like the Big Bang, this explosion, the Big Bang. Well, of course, the term caught on, and so for the rest of his life, he heard the term Big Bang, and he realized, I coined that term, and I don't believe in the Big Bang. It was kind of, I say it was kind of like taping a kick me sign to his back for the rest of his life. Like, you know, he comes up with the term Big Bang. But the reason I bring up Fred Hoyle is because he, even though he was an atheist, principled, right, he noticed things like what they call the ground state of beryllium. It's a form of carbon. Had to be, you know, like .00001. It had to be just this perfect, perfect, perfect thing. And as a chemist, he realized the odds of that are zero but it just so happened that it is exactly that. 
And at the end of his life, he said that for people who are open to this stuff, it really does point to God. There's no way around it. This is a man who didn't really believe in God, but he said it looks like a super intellect has monkeyed with the chemistry, the physics, the biology. It's, it's astonishing. The more you know from science, the more you're inclined to believe there is a God. So God flipped the script, and the more time passes, the less we say, is God dead? And we have to say, is atheism dead? Because this continues. This didn't stop. This goes on and on. The more science discovers. Uh, another thing that's just totally bizarre, they discovered that um, when the Big Bang happened in 13.8 billion years ago, okay, what they call the four uh, fundamental forces in physics. You don't need to know about this. I don't know about it. But it's gravity, electromagnetic force, the nu weak, weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. These are the four fundamental values. Physicists know all about this. Physicists know that less than a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, these four values were set in stone perfectly forever. And if any of those four values had happened to be different by like a point oh 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 one, the universe would not exist. Coincidence? Like imagine thinking like, oh well, it's, it's freaky. Because literally, the universe wouldn't exist. I won't go into why, but it goes on and on and on. The evidence for God is simply astonishing. And it gets to a point where you don't even... Now, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the reason I wrote the book is because I met two people over the last four or five years who made me begin thinking along these lines. One is a guy named Dr. James Tour. I'm not gonna get into that story, but it's, there's two chapters in the book devoted to him. He's one of these guys, he's so smart, he doesn't write books, you know? Like he just writes like papers that people like him can understand. He's like a genius scientist. But he talks about, not evolution, but he talks about the idea of how did life come into being from non-life? We never asked that question, right? Scientists say four billion years ago, Single cells emerged on Earth, and then everything evolved from that. And you're like, ah, wait a minute. Single cells emerged on Earth. So before there was evolution, according to the scientists, you're saying single cells, which is called life, emerged. How did that happen? James Tour says that the more we know from science, the more we know there's no chance that it happened randomly which is we've been trying to prove that for 70 years, like how that happened. Because we now know a cell is so complex that the simplest life ever imaginable is infinitely more complex than we knew a few decades ago. So the more we know from science, the less it's conceivable that the simplest life just emerged randomly. So when I met James Tour, I kind of thought, nobody ever asked that question, where life came from. We always argue about, how, about evolution and this and that. Where did life itself come from? There's a reason nobody asked that question, because science has no clue. But who's going to raise their hand and say, we have no clue? But James Tour has raised his hand, and he has said, they're clueless. Clueless! He always says clueless a second time just to get the point across, because he's kind of angry about it. They're spending billions of dollars researching this, and he says, no, 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 no. We now know that we don't know. So I wrote about the Big Bang. I wrote about the fine-tuned universe. Uh, James Tour uh, made me write about this other piece. I, I met another guy. This gets to the archaeology side of the book. Uh, I met a guy in Albuquerque. Um, it sounds like a Johnny Cash song, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, he's a biblical archaeologist. He discovered biblical Sodom. Now, I'm just here to tell you, when I heard that, I said, what are you talking about he discovered biblical Sodom? Like, I love reading about, you know, from, from Hugh Ross, I start reading about all this science and John Lennox and stuff, and I, now and again I'll read some stuff about archaeology, and they've discovered amazing stuff that proves the Bible is not just made up, right? Like, I remember the first thing I read was around 1990 or 92, some, sometime around then, that they discovered a military steel with the words on it that said the house of David. The first proof from archaeology, 3,000 years old, that the kingdom of David was not a mythical kingdom. So they keep discovering stuff. But when I was in Albuquerque, Skip Heitzig, this pastor, said, oh, you got to meet this guy, Stephen Collins. He discovered biblical Sodom. 
I said, what are you talking about? I read stuff. I never read about the discovery of biblical Sodom. That, that's like the first couple of pages of Genesis. He's like, oh, yeah, you talk to him. So I talked to him, and you start looking into it, and it gets very, very freaky because we're not saying he sort of thinks he discovered biblical Sodom. There was an article in Nature magazine. That's one of the premier scientific journals of our time. 21 scientists participated, and they basically corroborate this. Now, they can't say they believe the Bible is true, but they, they come as close as you can in a peer-reviewed academic journal. Believe me, it's, it's just unbelievable. And so when I discovered this, and the details are fascinating. Obviously, the, the details are in the book, but the details are what prove the case, where you just say, this is amazing. Um, and so it was sort of around the time that COVID b began, and I thought... Nobody seems to know about the fine-tuned universe and about the James Tour stuff, about how life didn't come into being by... And very few people know about the discovery of biblical... I said, I think I should put this in a book. And the, the natural title would be, Is Atheism Dead? Because the evidence continues to pile up, but it's piled up very quietly. We live in a secular world that tends not to report on this. And it's kind of like snow overnight where you're just, I know, I know it doesn't snow in San Diego, so give me a break, okay? You've seen, you've seen movies and TV. It snows in other parts of the world. But, you know, you go to sleep, and then you wake up, and it's, where did it come from? It's just slowly, quietly piled up and up and up and up and up. That's how I feel about the evidence for the fine-tuned universe, the evidence for all these things. There's no headline, but I thought it's about time somebody said, it's time to, to show some of this evidence, at least so that the body of Christ can be familiar with Fact. This is fact. This is not religious fact. This is just science and archaeology and, and, and a few other things. It's important we understand that we have lived most of our lives with this myth of that, that religion is at war with science uh, and that somebody, maybe like Stephen Jay Gould, the paleontologist from Harvard, he uh, passed away, but, but he, he, he first said that I'll accept this idea of overlapping magisteria, right? The idea that, you know, we have our scientific stuff over here, and then there's religious truth over here, and they're non-overlapping. So you can have your religion there, and we've got our science here. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you believe in the scripture, you understand that doesn't work. If God is truth, if God created the universe, there's no such thing as this kind of truth and that kind of truth. It's either truth or it's non-truth. So there's no Christian history. It's either history or it's made up. There's no, there's no Christian science. Either it's science that everybody gets or it's made up. And so I think we have to start understanding that as time has passed, God more and more reveals himself through history, through archaeology, through science, so that it becomes more and more difficult to deny him. It doesn't mean you can't, but it becomes more and more difficult. And I think part of it is that um, we know the famous Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy comes in like a flood. I mean, what is happening in our country at this point is just, I don't care where you are politically, you understand this ain't normal. When the enemy comes in like a flood and they start telling you things that you know can't be true, right? A rooster can't lay an egg. I'm pretty sure that, that that's not possible. So what's happening? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up a standard. The Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. In other words, I think that as things go crazy, the Lord reveals things more and more. He raises a battle flag in the midst of the smoke of the battle and says, follow this flag and fight. We're in a battle. Fight. Fight, fight, fight on your knees, fight in the school board, fight, get involved, because truth matters. It's not irrelevant. If somebody says something that's not true, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian. Truth matters, folks, and lies harm human beings, and we need to fight for truth. And I really believe that by the discovery of biblical Sodom and the discovery of a number of these other things, the Lord is raising up a battle standard, a flag in the midst of the battle and saying, we're in a war, but I am giving you more and more ammunition to see what is true. But you need to be a part of getting it out there. 
because there are plenty of people that honestly want to know. Not everybody is an angry Marxist atheist who doesn't care what you think. There are lots of good people that really, they don't know. The people that read the, the Wall Street Journal article, there are plenty of them that thought, really? This is interesting. And maybe they went in and did some reading and research. There are plenty of people in this country, in the world, that are open to truth, but they keep getting a secular narrative. And a main reason I wrote the book is just to say, look, there's, there's a lot out there you're not hearing about. And I've just put a fraction of it uh, in, in the book, but we need to begin understanding that science, no matter how you slice it, is pointing to God. Uh, archaeology is pointing to God. And this idea that science is at odds with faith, not only is that not true, okay? Science, as I say, is pointing to faith, but I'll go a step further. Science itself came into being because of Christian faith. That is not a nice idea that I want to believe. It's historical fact. Non-Christians have asserted this. I quote them in the book because they, have, they don't have a dog in the fight. And they say that it was Western Christianity around the 16th, 17th centuries that created an environment in which science could emerge so that modern science today would not exist if it hadn't been for Christian faith. Now, there's good reasons for this, okay? Because, for example, Christians believe in original sin. We believe that mankind has fallen. So we can't be like Aristotle and say, I think my mind tells me that uh, every circle is perfect, therefore uh, every planet and, and, and everything that's out there orbits in a perfect circle because it seems logical, right? A fallen person or a person who knows he's fallen says, I don't know, maybe God has a different idea of things, so I need to actually observe what happens. I can't just postulate it and then demand that reality bend, you know, to my philosophy. Now, Aristotle's Greek, and I should never say a negative thing about a Greek because my father would kill me, but don't tell him I said that. But the fact of the matter is Aristotle got a lot right, but he got a lot wrong. And we would not have modern science today if we hadn't realized that it is our inclination as human beings, and this is just one example, but it's our inclination to say things are this way or this way or this way. But if you know that we're fallen, that we have self-interest, you have to say we have to have a system whereby we discover things. We have to have a community of people that, that look at evidence and that I can, I can have an experiment and I can do it twice and you can do it and you can get the same results. So that's just one mention, but I'm saying that without question, non-scientist historians say that science as we know it came out of the Christian faith. Now, the idea that you could say science is at war with faith, is a, it's more than absurd. And the founding myth of atheism, it's pretty much the Galileo story. We've all heard that, right? That Galileo was a brave scientist at war with the church. That's not true, folks. Galileo was himself a profound Christian, without any question. He just was smart enough to know that there's no such thing as overlapping, non-overlapping magisteria. He was smart enough to know that whatever I discover in the world of science will never and can never contradict the scripture, which is the word of God. He knew that. So he wasn't afraid to follow the science where it led because he said, I know it can't contradict the scripture or the scripture is not the word of God, and I know it's the word of God. So what happened back then was really that the Aristotelians, there we go again, the Aristotelians had some ideas that really pushed against what Galileo was saying, and they got a, a hold of part of the church, not all of the church, but it's been created as this myth of atheism, that you've got brave, free-thinking scientists versus the church. Folks, that's simply not true, okay? If, you know, the founding myth of Rome that Romulus and Remus were suckled by a she-wolf on the banks of the Tiber, that's about as plausible. Should, should I not say suckled by a she-wolf? Is that, this is the 1030 service. I would never say something like that, the 830. You know me. You know I wouldn't do that. But I mean, we need to get the facts straight from history. I can't prove to you that God exists, but I can say that story is not true. And this science is true. And this archaeology is true. And you make your own decision. But then you come to the idea of meaning itself. Atheism, and I want to close on this, atheism is such a bleak philosophy that most atheists, I argue, are not atheists. 
They're agnostics. Because to be a true atheist and to say there is no God means some things that we can't handle. It means there's no meaning in the universe. Some people say, well, I create my own meaning. That's called sophistry, okay? You can't create your own meaning. Otherwise, it's not meaning. We're talking about meaning. If there's no God, there's no meaning. It means there's no good or evil. It means that if you murder a thousand people cruelly, it's not even bad or evil. There is no such thing. We're just here randomly. Life is meaningless. Nobody can face that. The greatest atheists of the 20th century, I would say Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, they had the courage to look at this, like really look into the abyss of what we're talking about. And both of them were troubled by it. They said, we're trying to create a system of ethics without God, and we can't do it. And at the end of their lives, and this is in the book, and, and I really can't believe it, like hardly anyone knows this. I mean, nobody knows this, and this is why I said I, I gotta put it in the book. Both of the arch-atheists of the 20th century, at the end of their lives, both of them came to believe in God. Nobody knows that, and I, I don't want it to leave this room. Let's keep it, you know, just amongst ourselves. But I mean, what does it tell you that the people that looked with the most rigor at real atheism ultimately come to faith in God. Folks, that's at least a headline. That's big news. And I, I, I gotta say that at, at the end of the book as I deal with atheism and I talk about the new atheist, which is you know Hitchens and Dawkins and those guys, I gotta say compared to Sartre and Camus and Anthony Flew and a few others, they are very shallow, very sloppy, and really, I found it embarrassing to, to read what they were writing. These are brilliant men who, when it came to this kind of stuff, really ought to be ashamed of themselves because they're not looking very seriously at the issue. It seems like they wanted to sell books or they just want, I don't know what, but, but if you look at it seriously, nobody who understands the implications of a world without God is happy about it. If you've ever listened to a, a, an interview with Woody Allen when he talks about it, you could see he's deeply troubled. He believes there's no God, but he's not happy about it. He understands that it's kind of gruesome. We live in a world with no meaning. What does that mean? How do we live? If you look at uh, Ingmar Bergman uh, and his films, uh, The Seventh Seal, I mentioned it in the book, beautiful. Uh, what, what does it mean to live in a world without God? The poet Dylan Thomas said he was an atheist, but then he saw evidence. When his father died, he wrote this famous poem, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Something inside Dylan Thomas, even though he said, I think I'm an atheist, but why don't I want my father to die? Why do I want him to fight? If life were meaningless, it wouldn't make any difference. I'm here to tell you that God has given us evidence everywhere, and that even an atheist like Hitchens or Dawkins, you wanna ask them, why are you arguing so vigorously for your point of view? Because if what you say is true, who cares? If what you say is true, why do you care whether anyone knows it's true? Where our lives are meaningless, we're like a gnat, a speck, and we're gonna be dead forever and ever and ever and no one will ever remember us. Why are you arguing? I'll tell you why. Because against their own intellect, they are proving that they can't believe it. Even in arguing for atheism, they are arguing against atheism. Folks, the God of the scripture has given us all of these ways to know that he's real, to know that he's true. There's no way around it. If he exists, and he does, he is astonishingly intelligent, powerful. The more you know, the more frightened you should be. It is frightening. And then you realize, oh, oh, this frightening God who invented the universe out of nothing knows my name loves me, wants a relationship with me, a personal relationship. That's even more amazing than his creating the universe. So I wanna tell you folks that the God who did all that, the most important thing to him is not the universe he created, it is you for whom he created the universe 
He wants a relationship with you. He is a person. He's not an energy force. He wants a relationship with you. And so if you already believe, I'm here to tell you, none of us believes with enough, enough faith. The more you know about this God, the more you think, wow, I need to walk bravely and confidently and joyfully through this world so that those who don't know what I know will see that there is something so beautiful that is for them. And I say to people who have honest questions, folks, I dare you to look at this. You know, people didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope. Did you know that? They were afraid that the evidence of their eyes would mess them up and they would believe what he believed. So they thought, we're just not going to look through the telescope. Folks, there are people that they don't want to look at this information. And you know what? That's their prerogative. It's a free country so far. But I got to tell you, God knows that there are plenty of people who want to know. And any of us who does know or who has an inkling, we have an obligation to share this. It's called good news for a reason. Good news is the greatest understatement in the history of the universe. It is news that is so good that it should break our hearts. It should make us weep for the beauty of it. It is something that is beyond us, but God in his mercy has allowed us to taste enough of it that we can be a part of it and that he can use us for his purposes to share the most glorious things imaginable with every soul that is just open in the tiniest way. Many of us hated God. Many of us in this room didn't want to hear anything about him. God can reach anybody. He loves every one of us. He died. He didn't die for humanity. He died for you and for me and for our friends. So let me close with a prayer. Father God, Lord, we know these things are true. Help us to believe them in such a way that we live our whole lives to your glory, sharing the love and the joy that you died to give us, that we might give it to those who don't yet know. In Jesus' name, amen.